This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. And welcome to Suite 212, the show which puts the arts in their social, cultural and political context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Tom Overton, and I'm joined today by the writer, editor and translator, Daniel Schreer. Welcome, Danny. Hello. Hi. Is it working? <laughs> it is. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, later in the show, we'll be talking about the Belgian filmmaker, artist and writer, Chantal Ackerman, whose memoir, Mamere, uh, my mother laughs, uh, da- Daniela has translated from French to English. Uh, as such, she has absolute carte blanche to correct my dreadful French pronunciation at any point in the show. <laughs> nice use of a French phrase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Danny's translation will be published by Silver Press, the feminist publisher who have also recently released books by Audrey Lord and Leonora Carrington and Nell Dunn. Uh, the Silver Press website, silverpress.org, uh, you can, is where you can currently pre-order it for thirteen ninety nine, uh, and it describes it as both the both the distillation of the themes Ackerman pursued throughout her creative life, and a version of the simplest and most complicated love story of all, that between a mother and a daughter. First, though, I want to ask Danny about a different but closely related project, the feminist film journal she co-founded in twenty sixteen, uh, uh, with Dorothy Allen Pickard. Uh, I was in London here, uh, and of which she is the editor, Another Gaze, a copy of the print journal I have in front of me, uh, number two from... Uh, <laughs> Nicely worn. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Um, from November 2018, um, seems to me to demonstrate something that Ackerman said herself, that the idea of a single language of feminist film is like saying there is only way for one way for women to express themselves, but there should be as many different ways as there are different kinds of women making films. This one has articles on mothers, listening, intimacy, hysteria, Italian cinemas, animals, the South, Anthropocene, decolonializing and querying the gays. <laughs> and it covers filmmakers uh, from Agnes Varda to Chantal Ackerman and Pier Paolo Pasolini and conversations with Nandita Das and Lucille Hadj... I shouldn't have put this down, should I? Hadjili... Uh, do you know how to... Oh God, I wish I did. <laughs> I practiced before I met her, but... <laughs> um, you can see it in the journal. Uh, listeners can probably glean from the description that it's brilliantly international and diverse in scope uh, and also very nicely, but you can't see that it's very nicely designed as an object. Um, the website where you can look at it while you're listening to us talk and maybe subscribe and buy issues and donate is anothergaze.com. Uh, and yeah, there you are. So Danny, what was uh, the motivation behind starting Another Gaze and how did you get started? Thanks for that summary. It was really nice. It seems like you've really paid attention, which is kind. <laughs> um, so I started it um, because I was unemployed and um, I just finished a university degree um, studying French. And I was kind of, you know, when you're kind of, you've just finished finals, and you're so full of ideas and then you suddenly realise that you are nothing <laughs> in, the wor- in the world. And um, <clears throat> I'd just been reading, I did actually did my dissertation on Santa Ackerman and I'd been reading loads of feminist film journals from the 70s, like Camera Obscura, um, Frauen und Film. I can't do German pronunciation. And... Um, <clears throat> and I, it was in, like incredibly inspiring and I realised that those journals still existed but were kind of um, behind a paywall and required an academic, either to be part of an academic institution or to pay a lot of money. Um, so I was kind of looking for something similar and I found this brilliant feminist film journal called Clio, um, which is online, but I kind of wanted to do something that was maybe more regular and included reviews and more interviews, filmed interviews. So something cross-medium, um, yeah, including video as that's the medium that um, I wanted writers to discuss. Mm. Um, and also now it's kind of gone into more programming as well. Um, and yeah, more more cross-forum sort of stuff. Mm. How did you get, um, how did uh, Dorothy Allen Pickard come into it? Like, so no, we, we met in um, in Paris. <laughs> in, um, <clears throat> she's a filmmaker, but we met um, on our year abroad because we were both studying French. And we sort of just used to re- meet up and kind of bitch about men <laughs> often. Um, and then we were both in the same sort of frustrating place after finishing univer- university. And we met up and we said, um, the world needs something like this. Um, let's give it a go. And we were like, let's do a zine. And then I kind of wanted to do something a bit more ambitious in terms of um, design because I also do graphic design. Mm. Um, but I wanted to do something that kind of... I like zines, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to do something that looked less sort of punky or something that didn't have like loads of vaginas on the front because I kind of didn't want it to be um, 
essentialist in that way. So I wanted to look, do something that looked kind of serious, but also um, welcomed a range of voices from sort of students to, to academics. And um, something that people kind of ingrained in the in the both in the academic side of film and filmmaking would pay attention to because because it looked <laughs> um sort of more serious maybe than some sort of zines uh don't have don't, aren't disseminated very much because they're a uh, short print run mm. so yeah that's <laughs> and so dorothy now um we did, we do the video side together still which is um mm. sort of short portraits of um women filmmakers from across the world and we, that's the way we get funding occasionally <laughs> so for example we've just got funding to go to japan um <clears throat> in autumn to interview as many women filmmakers as possible there oh, wow. um and so you can see them on the website they're basically short like five minute um interviews with women filmmakers and in between their sort of anecdotes and stuff you, and they're talking about their films individually you get these um sort of short um <laughs> sort of short extracts from their films yeah um which is nice because it's something that you can't really have in print um so yeah yeah one of them the one you sent me went viral i think didn't it like yeah, well, I don't know really what vi viral probably constitutes more than like <laughs> a thousand or something shares, but it felt viral at the time. <laughs> In the feminist film world, it was a bit viral. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about, about that, that interview? Yeah, sure. So we interviewed this woman called Nellie Kaplan, and it was amazing. I mean, part of the fun of th this is kind of finding women filmmakers who are... Who are sort of not being spoken about anymore and so this woman made film a bunch of films in the 60s that were kind of um denounced by feminists because they spoke about sex work and, and things like that which are now obviously being discussed and sex negativity is like you know something that's sort of spoken about in very bad terms at the moment obviously so um she now i thought now people like women, like feminists would love the her films so i um we, we sort of searched everywhere and She's about, I think she's like now 90 or 89, and she doesn't have and no information about her was online. So you do go through this whole really fun, I love stalking. <laughs> so it's like the best, stalking and feminist film. Um, I sort of went through phone books and like found her distributors from the 70s who were like all dead. Um, and eventually I think it was like, her email address was like Nelly Kaplan at gmail.com. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um, but she was, she took like three weeks to reply because she doesn't look at her emails or something. And then she phoned us up. We sort of, she was like, I can only do it in like an hour. So we like raced across Paris and um, interviewed her. And she lived, well, no, she said, don't tell anyone where I live. <laughs> I was obviously like, no, but I'll tell you. <laughs> no, she lives near the Champs Elysees. And it was kind of amazing because it's where, you know, no one lives now, but she's lived there for such a long time. And she mm. was a Jewish um, immigrant from Argentina. Um, really funny. No one talks about that fact. Um, but um, yeah, she's an Argentinian, and she she's. I've just read. I just read these amazing interviews with her before I did it, and um, I was like, it'll be great to get this reproduced because they were in, they were in French, and I wanted to subtitle it and, and have mm. her say all these wonderful things. And she did. She just came out with the most amazing stories. For example, the fact that um, her film La Fiancée du Pirate, um, which is translated, I think, as a very curious girl. Um, the distributor told her that she had to kill her female protagonist for it to be yeah. to get distribution basically so then we did that and we also screened um, back in 2017 um, that film with Laura Mulvey talking about it because she'd put it on um, at the Edinburgh Film Festival I think mm. in um, God I don't want to say the date I want to say 82 but maybe not um, the first sort of women in film event in maybe 72 no, I don't know um, <laughs> yeah so she'd put it on and she came to talk about it and it was the first time she'd seen it since she'd put it off on yeah. so that was really nice sort of um, reinvestigation re of of um, spectatorship and what it means to look in 2019 versus yeah. at the time we'll, we'll link to that, uh, that interview <laughs> you don't need to it's amazing but uh, yeah Nelly Kaplan yeah. She's, she's brilliant um so you, you talked about you mentioned Clio. Um, was there sort of any, anything else you that was already existed that you kind of like you felt you could look to for inspiration when you're doing it, or was that kind of the point that there wasn't anything? Um, well, I think there's. I mean, there's a bunch of women film critics who weren't just women film critics, but incredible feminist film critics. Um, for example, Molly Haskell, um, Melissa Anderson in New York. Um, there wasn't really any sort of Anglo or UK centric or Eurocentric, in fact, things that I was really seeing. Um, recently that I thought uh, so I thought yeah this is needed um I don't know who else um I mean there's some amazing women doing work who are academics but write in a really beautiful 
uh, way, which is what I saw in Camera Obscura and stuff. So, mm. uh, for example, Erica Balsams and Eleanor Gorfinkel, both UK-based, but they're um, from North America. They're, I think they're doing really interesting work, mm. um, sort of bringing women back into the forum for discussion, but in a really not academically exclusive way. Mm. And um, they're doing programming too, um, so they're great. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if people, uh, if people want to, because it's like a submissions page, if people want to, what sort of thing are you looking for if people are kind of interested in this? Good. Well, to, we, so we publish uh, twice a year, the print journal, um, but it's kind of got quite big now. <laughs> so we've got about 400 submissions per, no, how many do you have? Like 250 or 300 um, last issue. And that was a bit overwhelming <laughs> going through all of them. But I think um, what I've, what I really like now and what I've been reading about lately is like canon formation mm. and the fact that you can't just have a woman's name like in in like back in the world without contextualizing it so for example Barbara Hammer who's who recently died and whose work sort of blew up in the last five years even though she'd been making films for like 50 no for, for, yeah um so there was there was an article about her but I was like we don't need just one article and it's true that I kind of got I would kind of put a limit to the amount of Agnes Varda <laughs> articles we were receiving because I thought they were about films like Cleo, which is brilliant, obviously, but which is talked about a lot. Whereas mm -hmm. I'd love, for example, for big women filmmakers, my, more minor in inverted commas works to be um, focused on as well. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to keep... And it's kind of like I, at the beginning, I was like, oh, we, but we don't need another blah article. But it's like there's no limit mm. <laughs> apart from the amount of labor it takes to, <laughs> to yeah. edit an article. Um, so I don't know. I guess I'm really into experimental women filmmakers at the moment just because I don't think they get nearly the airtime at festivals or mm. in discussion as they should. And there's loads of brilliant women who who are just being rediscovered via like arch um, experimental film archives like the film co-op in new york and mm. things like that um so i don't know but i think at the moment my <laughs> just because three amazing women filmmakers have recently died um in one month uh mm. now i'm like we need to get all the old <laughs> interviews of all the old women old women filmmakers um that would be great yeah, because I mean the, the the Varda memorial piece you did was was really really lovely. Could you tell a bit about how that came together? Or? Yeah, well, it's just it's one of those horrible things where if you're a writer or an editor interested in a certain <laughs> filmmaker and when or or just c cultural personality, when that figure dies and you kind of want to be <laughs> grieving, I guess, um, <laughs> and you're suddenly like, oh god, we've got to do <laughs> we've got to do yeah. a piece on her, and it's a bit it can be a bit opportunistic and, and horrible, and I kind of have some reservations about certain types of obituary like the ones that just kind of reel off um the names of f similar filmmakers which i found really um <laughs> problematic when uh, um ackerman died for example that mm. the people that were named were jean-luc godard and um gus van Sant guy van Sant godard what's his name gus gus <laughs> man <laughs> i don't know them <laughs> um gus van Sant. um and i was like god why why are we talking about these men when we're Anyway, so um, something I wanted to do in, in the obituary, I didn't want to just ask one one figure to write an obituary on Varda. I wanted to have a multitude of voices because especially in the past few years, everyone seems to be a Varda fan. Um, mm. I've seen about like five T-shirts with Agnes Varda on <laughs> since she died. But um, so I wanted to ask the people that I had been kind of aware of um, throughout the world, like not just a Anglo or American point of view, um, who had sort of done something, either something to revitalize her work by programming it or had written something interesting on her. So um, I approached Kiva Reardon, who um, who edits Cleo or found, founded Cleo, and she put on, or she helped put on um, a retrospective of Varda at TIFF in um, Toronto. And I asked, I wanted to ask Sheila Hetty because she, I really admire her writing, but also she'd done this really brilliant um interview with Fada, which was kind of not an interview, which was kind of the inspiration for this roundtable, um, mm. which was the fact that she went to interview Varda at TIFF um, and uh, they, she wasn't doing solo interviews. So she sort of sat on this. I've been on this as well, a festival roundtable where like you get a bunch of male critics asking, <laughs> no, a bunch of critics asking sort of what's your favourite colour? And then some people who have a really interesting question don't get any time, but whatever. Mm. Anyway, she kind of um, used that restraint restriction to sort of um say something about collaboration and in in Varda's work and she really made it work so I was like it'd be great to have something collaborative on mm. the to mark the death of Varda so 
Yeah, and then I asked, I wanted to get a range of different ages. So, for example, Grace Barber Plenty, she's um, a mid 20s um, programmer and writer. And then you've got Sandy Flitterman Lewis, who's 70 something, who was mm. one of the founders of Camera Obscura and actually brought VADA scholarship into the sort of, she kind of brought VADA to, one of, one of the people that brought VADA to America. Mm. So I think also this cross generational thing, um, I try, I mean, it, you know, the gays writers are generally quite young, <laughs> which is nice, but mm. I do really want to kind of reintroduce voices that may, might have been forgotten. Mm. Um, so like Sandy Flitterman Lewis also wrote an, a piece for um, on the death of Marceline Rodin Evans in the mm. second issue. So, yeah. And um, I just think the roundtable, it was originally, so I asked everyone, all the participants to sort of write <laughs> 500 words on her yeah. and they all wrote about a thousand and <laughs> so we had to cut it down from like 8,000 words to 5,000 or something but still it's very long but it was just the answer to like five very simple questions like what's your favourite Varda film but everyone because everyone has watched so many of her films because it's such an amazing wide-ranging interesting um, variety of work everyone had such different things to say about her mm. Um, and personal anecdotes, um, which I think are great mm. <laughs> and should be utilised more. I it, it, mean, it's just like completely subjective, um, nearly all of the things that they wrote, and I just think it was a really nice way to memorialise. Um, yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> great. Um, and, we'll, yeah, again, we'll, we'll link to that. Uh, what, so what are your kind of ambitions for the future for another game? Ambitions. Ambitions. Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> the, the website's become sort of more and more expansive. Like, yeah, I mean, because at the beginning we didn't actually have reviews, and now it's like um, because I wanted the reviews are kind of funny because often they're published about <laughs> seven months after the films come out. <laughs> no, not quite. But then I was like, oh, it's just political because it means that like women's films or films by women are in the like public mindset and and just like um, forum for discussion for longer. So mm. that was a nice way of um, <laughs> twisting my. Um, too much work and laziness into something political um but yeah um i don't know what the future is i guess like it just becomes more and more because obviously i'm always trying to sort of balance the um more mainstream narrative fiction with um more experimental modes and also especially sometimes i'm like should we cover this big man's film like for example the Lars von Trier film i was i just in a, such a um sort of internal debate about whether to actually publish something because even something um, negative would probably feed into his hands mm. and everyone knows that he's a misogynist and like mm. should we really be giving him airtime no matter how like, the sort of qualitative um, angle of the piece um, and something like that is really difficult but then also I kind of thought I mean the sort of 70s women film um, women in film uh, journals were much more into like just amplifying um, films by women mm. and not all films by women are feminist not all women writers are feminist and mm. some men's films are brilliantly feminist so like I think the the idea of um, having a sort of subjective spectator uh, women spectator and, and the co contradictions that come with that like for example there's some amazing feminist writing on Hitchcock um, that's really interesting to me like contradictions and guilt and mm. things like that and the sort of yeah the way you know because most women have not come into I mean especially young women have not come into the love of cinema through just watching films by women mm. um they've had this sort of conflicted um viewership thing and now they kind of want to see themselves on screen finally mm. so yeah there's that <laughs> but I don't know I don't know about the future I think uh, <laughs> I don't know it's really exhausting because there's always so many there's you can never have enough um there's never enough time to edit as many pieces as you want. So yeah. obviously with some funding, for example, <laughs> you have to hire more yeah. editors. I can't really work with this brilliant editor called Heather, but um, but she's got a million other amazing things to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I just, it would be great to have more money, basically, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's hopefully that's the, future. Hope the future. <laughs> yeah, hope for the future. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Tom Overton. I'm talking to uh, Daniela Schreer. Uh, you can find out about more about Another Gaze on anothergaze.org. Um, and yeah, we'll post some of the links to the stuff we've been talking about. Moving on, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, your work on Chantal Ackerman, Danny, uh, and the translation that you've made of her memoir, Ma Mère uh, When she died in 2015, you wrote a piece for the London Review of Books blog, which pointed out that because the films don't have conventional plots with the beginning, 
middle and end there's a sense of contradiction inherent in trying to do the same for her life but um for listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with Chantal Ackerman could you give us just a kind of introductory outline of you know, who she was and what she did yeah so um Ackerman was born oh my god do you even know do you know what year she was born i want to say 1949 or something but if you have google there just (laughs) she anyway she was a a belgian filmmaker um and a writer she sort of made her she made her first film oh she was 18 when she made her first film in 1968 so 50 very easy to remember um (laughs) and um she sort she grew up in belgium um brussels uh she had her parent, her mother was Polish, um, and her father was, I think, Belgian. Um, her mum had was a Holocaust survivor. She'd been, I think, she'd come to Brussels to flee Poland, and then had been taken back into um, into Auschwitz. Um, a few of her relatives died. I think her grandfather, her maternal grandfather, um, was killed. And then um, she grew up in Brussels. Um, was sort of. She talks in the memoir about how she was really bad at school <laughs> mm. and um, because she kind of refused to conform to what good writing was meant to be in, so she always got bad marks. Um, and then she she went to film school at 18 but dropped out after three months. Um, I think she did something... She did a lot of dodgy financial stuff, which is, like, part of what I love so much. <laughs> she put, I think she put shares up for her film, her first film, before she'd made it, so Sud Ma Ville, which is um, a 12-minute film. She'd put, put out shares for it on the stock market. Um, and <laughs> what? No, it was a diamond stock. Oh, yeah, I think it was a diamond exchange, like stock exchange. Yeah, it's a diamond thing, right? yeah she put um, shares on it, made this film, but she didn't have any money to. That was for the production cost, but she didn't actually have any money to um, edit it or distribute it. So after I think like two years or something, the editor, who, I mean the the film processor who had her film, was like. <laughs> Do you want me to just throw this away? And she so she like scraped some money together. She got it back and and edited it. And I think it, I think um, this guy called Eric or something. I can't remember his name. <laughs> he he sort of discovered this film and he put it on TV. And and after that, he kind of helped um, support her financially in terms of getting funds together from mm-hmm. Belgian TV. Um, so then she went to America. Um, made some films again by stealing money uh, she was working at a porn theater and kept giving people the wrong change because they were so embarrassed to be there that yeah. these men kind of came in with like bowed heads and she'd give them the wrong the wrong change but they didn't notice and so she made she got all this money together to make Jean Dielman yeah. um with Babette Mangold who's this brilliant um still alive cinematographer and filmmaker who she met in New York and made a bunch of films with um and what else about her she was a lesbian, she was Jewish, obviously. <laughs> um, and she spent most of her life, she was very nomadic. She lived in New York, Paris, Brussels at various points. Um, and she died in 2015. Um, and yeah, by her own hand, sadly. After um, making about 40 films, I think, 40, yeah. 50 films. And I suppose like you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Jean Dielman there, and I, that's kind of like the one that's like the most famous one. But I, I think you maybe sort of possibly don't think that it should have like the prominence in, in the. Oh no, I do. I just think it's sad that she made this film at twenty-five, and um, she was kind of always talking about how it loomed over her work. And mm. I mean, this is a problem for so many filmmakers. Like Agnes Varda's equivalent would probably be Cleo, but mm. because after she died, I mean, I think currently now we're going through a lots of people are doing Agnes Varda's retrospectives, and I think that might change. But um, yeah, I think Jean Dillman's amazing. It's a three-hour, 20-minute film, uh, which people kind of find off-putting and maybe even arrogant. At the time, I think they found it arrogant, but uh, Ackerman is, is so funny and tragicomic that I think she was kind of taking the piss a bit deliberately. Um, mm. But it was it's about a housewife um, whose husband, I think, died, and she has a son, and she tries to make money. Uh, she makes money through sex work um, in at her house, and... Um, it's played by Delphine Seyrig, which is an amazing thing because she was a, such a famous actor at the time. Mm. And I think um, Delphine Seyrig also has her own filmmaking history. She was part of a feminist collective and she was one of the very few female actors at the time to sort of speak out about feminism. Um, but she kind of refused to work with men after a certain point in the 70s. And so I think she, I mean, she worked with Marguerite Duras, she worked with Orita Ottinger. Um, and Shanta Ackerman a lot and she was very faithful to Ackerman they did a lot of work together so to see Delphine Seyrig as a housewife was the kind of the first initial shock um, mm. for the spectator but also 
Ackerman talks about how she wanted like the everyday quotidian gesture to be brought to um, the screen, something that you see so often that it's kind of almost a shock when you see it um, mm. represented. Yeah. Um, and so you have these like five minute sequences of her making meatloaf <laughs> um, and this sort of yeah endless repetition. Um, and yeah, at the time, I mean, Marguerite Duress came, to, went to see it at Cannes. She she called her mad, <laughs> um, walked out. Um, Jonas Mekas, um, who was otherwise a big fan of Ackerman, talked about how he saw it as flawed because why did she have to be a sex worker? Mm. And at the end, um, spoiler, <laughs> she kills one of her clients, and that's how it ends. And so Jonas Mekas was like, why does she need to do that? Um, so there was, I think the, that's really interesting. The reception at the time versus mm. the reception now, and now it's you know one of the few films by women in the Criterion Collection and it's heralded as her greatest work but I think the fact that she she was so upset to have kind of peaked too soon um, means that we should really investigate some of her um, more minor works mm. um, but also I think what's really interesting and this kind of relates to her writing is um, this thing that she talks about about there being no progression and she's like it would be easy if I if there was some progression in my filmmaking uh, in my filmmaking and it, and every time I made a film it'd be better but that doesn't happen and I think mm. she because all of her films were about her mother in, in one way or another and as she said herself um, I think her final writing project is what makes it so interesting mm. this sort of other form um, and the things she does with that because I, th I think I, I can't remember if it was in an interview or something I read that said that um, Ackerman had written Jean Dillman originally as a sort of novel, like a, the, the, there was a sort of because like, you know, she, she was a very kind of writerly, you know. The, the, I mean, in, in that um, she kind of moved between forms quite interestingly. I think in, in that um, that that blog you wrote, I think you, you, there's a line here where you say many of Ackerman's displays of uh, exposed bodies could be isolated pieces of feminist performance art. In some ways, she was less like Anya Svada than like Marina Abramovich. Like, uh, you <laughs> no, I haven't read that in a long time. It's really embarrassing and naive. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and I think what's so interesting is like, for example, with Jeanne Dielman, um, she was one of, she kind of self cited. So like, um, she did a lot of installation work, Ackerman, and I think that's something that's also forgotten about. Um, she had a brilliant. Um, Exhibition on Ambika P Free, MB Free AP, what's it called? Ambika P Free? Yeah, yeah in Baker Street, um, which is part of the University of Westminster. She had that just before she died. I think she was meant to come and give a talk. Um, and uh, in it, there's some brilliant video work, but most of her video work is sort of taken from her filmmaking. So I love this idea of like self-citation as a mm. woman. Um, and so she has this, um, when when she kills this man in Jan Dielman at the end, um, she sits down at a, on a chair for seven minutes. And um, Ackerman took that later on and... Um, made a video piece called Women Sit Still After a ki Killing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's just this individual piece of um, experimental, well, f uh, video work, which is taken from Jan Dielman. And um, also, yeah, I mean, she is a performer, Ackerman, completely like her burlesque comedy. She she does a lot of sort of the gestures she uses mm. um, have been compared to like Laura and Hardy and Charlie Chapman, mm. Chaplin. <laughs> um, and she appears on lots of her films, which... Again, it's something that women are not supposed to do. Like Sally Potter's being criticised for doing that. Um, mm. Meanwhile, like Woody Allen, until <laughs> until he got cancelled, uh, was like heralded for how mm. self-aware he was for appearing in his own films and how you know how brilliant that made his work. So Ackerman appears like throughout her work. She appears via voiceover in a few of her later works, and she appears in, for example, Je Tue Lel, um, Saute Ma Ville, and. Um, mm. I recently just watched this brilliant um, film that I'd never seen before, um, but I'd always heard about it. I didn't know it, it, that you could get it on Vimeo or YouTube, but you can. It's called L'Homme à la Valise, which is um, Man with a Suitcase. I don't think it's ever translated, but it's um, it's just so funny. <laughs> she's um, she is an hour long. It was made for the TV, and she's... Um, um, she returns home after she's been away or something, and she finds that this man's living in her apartment, like her mm. flatmate's kind of gone away and given it to this very tall man, and she's in it looking like a butch lesbian <laughs> and then there's this very very tall man who's really overly friendly and she wants to just work in her room so she yeah. kind of writes out this schedule of times when he wakes up so that she can make sure never to encounter him and it's just a brilliant thing about living together and also like how a woman does her work and you hear him typing really loudly and she's well while, while she's trying to work he's singing in the shower things from like the musical oklahoma while she's trying to and she just i mean and then in the end she like sets up the cctv system so she could all 
always see where if he's going to come back into the apartment. So, I mean, she's just hilariously funny. And I think part of what um, is so great about My Mother Last, My Marie, is um, how tragic comic it is. I mean, <laughs> it deals with an abusive relationship, the Holocaust. Um, <laughs> you can't get much darker mm. than, than those things. And um, there's a lot of weddings and funerals as well. Um, she talks about how she hates weddings. So, mm. um, But it's also really funny. I mean, just the repetition she uses. Um, and yeah, I mean, she, she talks about that as well, how she, um, the darker something is, the more um, you should laugh at it, so. Mm. Well, because that repetition, I, I think I've read people talking about how connected that is to like kind of ritual and it's one of the aspects of the kind of the Jewishness of, of mm. filmmaking. Is that, that, that yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's meant to be, um, sound like a sort of, um, she talks about it uh, being psalmodic. Yeah. <laughs> um, like the Jewish prayer she heard at synagogue when she was young. I mean, she went to, her mum wasn't practicing, and that's part of No Home Movie as a kind of companion film um, to Memory. It's her last film, and it's just uh, a document. It's a documentary, very simply done um, about her mother and her sort of final years. But um, yeah, in it, her mum talks about her sort of ambivalent relationship to religion, and um, Chantal talks about how she went to. Um, Hebrew school when she was growing up and I think these are the things that you never forget like that sort of rhythm mm. so definitely that comes across and I think it's also what makes it kind of interesting to translate because she talks about how her French is sloppy and it is <laughs> <laughs> I mean her French is not like writerly which is why it's so great mm. um, and she talks about how she often has um, found it easier to, to express her ideas in English just because um, she didn't have to worry about her sloppy French. Mm. Um, she had an excuse. <laughs> so, um, and I think that the closeness, she talks about how um, it maybe sound, her uh, um, rhythm sounds a bit more like Yiddish. So mm. Yiddish is closer to English and mm. Germanic languages than it is to French. Um, but also in terms of repetition, um, yeah, so she talks about it being connected to that, but also there's obviously like a traumatic thing about repetition and and the return of the repressed or whatever mm. um and the the like she talks about how all her films she does this she goes through this process of which she calls ressassement which is like a turning over and she talks about how she doesn't realize that until she the film's made that she's always talking about the same traumatic things like her relationship to her mother and the holocaust mm. um so there's that element of um of repetition as well, traumatic repetition. And it's interesting because um, I think I was reading Griselda Pollock on her or something. And, um, mm. She was talking about how it was um, it was more in the realms of post-memory um, because she wasn't a child of a Holocaust survivor who told her all the time about her experience in the camps, which often happened. Like mm. she, she didn't, she didn't hear that forever from her mother. Her mother sort of repressed it. So she's got this weird thing, which is post-memory, which is like these things coming to her um, when she least expects it and mm. and her tonic turning over these things that she, she, she can't even give the name to. Mm. So this part of repetition is really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, maybe now it's it's a good... Uh good point to kind of like if you, do you, do you want to read a section from your translation because i feel we've, we've yeah. kind of we've like circled around <laughs> yeah it yeah it'd be definitely. good to kind of like hear hear what it's actually like sure um i actually can't remember where i got this bit from i keep going back to it now that it's sort of edited um and um thinking about which bits uh maybe most interesting but this this extract i think it comes from around halfway um and it's about her versus her sister and her sort of well, you'll see. <laughs> um, okay. Um, for now, my sister is here. I haven't seen her for a long time and she's about to leave again. My sister has a life and she knows about, about its pleasures. I watch her and wonder how she learned them. She's known about life's pleasures from the moment she was born and she has soft brown eyes, her skin soft too. She's a curvaceous and smiling woman, except sometimes when she gets angry, but her anger passes straight away. She gets angry as soon as something angers her. She doesn't wait for years like I do. I wait years before saying that something has made me angry, even when it's caused me to suffer terribly. And even then, I need something else to bring the anger to the surface. Something that has nothing to do with the cause of my anger. Then I get angry. When I get angry, I feel like my anger is terrible and that my cries and shouts will cause the world to shatter around me, that someone will die of my anger. My anger is huge when I get going. And because it's usually me who ends up getting hurt in the end, I've come to resent it. And when I ask Elle, did you see how angry I got, how loudly I screamed, she laughs at me. You call that shouting? Yes. Then Elle laughs even louder and I like to see her laugh. 
She has this crazy sense of humour, except sometimes when I try to make her laugh. Often when I try to make her laugh, it falls flat. Sometimes she even gets angry, and I can understand why. I hate making her angry, and I end up not knowing what to do with myself, so I do nothing in case it makes matters worse. I've never shouted at Elle, except twice, but both times I was under the influence. I didn't realise it at the time, but I was under the influence when I thought I was just managing to let myself go. But you never really let yourself go when you're under the influence. You only think that's what you're doing. And for several minutes, several hours, several days even, you walk around with a strange sense of freedom. And as soon as that wears off, you start asking yourself questions and wonder whether you really needed to break someone's heart in order to enjoy a few seconds of freedom, a few seconds of what I now call false freedom. When it's about something that doesn't really matter, I can sometimes manage to shout, even though deep down I know it doesn't really matter. And I'm very proud of having shouted. But when it's about something that matters, the anger stays bottled up inside me, and I get so tired out by it that I lie in bed sometimes for several days, wondering why, why I'm so tired. So then I start to take vitamins. I tell myself that it must be my anemia. During these periods, I've even gone to see the doctor who has sent me for blood test after blood test. There's always something wrong with my blood, but I'm used to it. I ask him if I shouldn't just get a full blood transfusion. He says no. <laughs> Sometimes he says, let me have a think. Well, we don't normally prescribe full blood transfusions. And even if we did, you know, in the end, your blood would come back into circulation. And suddenly I feel relieved. Deep down, I wouldn't really like to have someone else's blood. I don't know why I care so much about blood. It comes from a dark place that I don't want to uncover. I know that if I did, it would reveal something to me about myself that I wouldn't like. So I prefer to leave it in the dark. Often it's better to keep things in the dark, but sometimes I'm struck by an urge to seek out a truth. But which? That's very important. You can sense in books or films when there's a truth, even when it's hard to see, especially when it's hard to see. When there's a truth that's hard to see, even when you know it's there, something happens underground, slowly, sometimes very slowly, and suddenly, when you're no longer even thinking about it, this truth comes to light. And it's an incredible moment that doesn't happen every day and it's good. It's so good that you're suddenly struck by a feeling of weightlessness and calm. Tomorrow my sister will leave. I'm already scared of her leaving. I find myself alone with my mother who's got into the habit of grabbing my face and kissing it with an intensity that makes me turn away. She speaks with such an overt sentimentality that me and my sister have to stop her. We stop her just in time. So she says, I'm not allowed, even allowed to speak in my own home. But it's just that these aren't the words we want to hear. I don't know why. And when we laugh, she says, go on, go on, make fun of me. But we need to laugh. And sometimes we need to laugh hysterically. Because this blanket sentimentality threatens to overwhelm us and we don't know what to do with it. It's too heavy. Sometimes we can feel its weight for hours. And neither of us like it. It's too much. But my, but my mother loves it. It's as though she believes it reveals our love for each other. The love which is maybe already there. I don't know. Probably. A certain kind of love. I'm not sure. Thanks very much. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was uh, sort of looking around because it was originally it was published in the French in 2013, was it? And uh, I was kind of looking about sort of what had been written about um, or what Ackham had been talking about it. And uh, there's, I found something where she, I think it was a radio interview appropriately enough mm. where she um she says that it, uh, it's a kind of self-portrait but it's a it's a fictional construct and uh, and she is through the fictional mode she's a, a aspiring to truth uh and i suppose this kind of fits in with i mean it's a really interesting time to be thinking about this uh there's i mean there's, it's been going on for a while but there's a this you know auto fiction sort of the label there's the, the conference coming up at the RCA in May uh, which Anne Boyer Claire Louise Bennett and Joanna Walsh and Heike Geisler are speaking are you speaking a, there too is that what you're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> that too but like that label auto fiction does it um, Juliet is also speaking at <laughs> um, that label auto fiction does it kind of like is it something that fits for, for this book or like I think um Oh God, I hate to talk about autofiction, but yeah, I mean, I think it does because I think it, she talks about how, I mean, she talks about the struggle to find the truth, the whole thing. I mean, what's so interesting about translating is this is, um, it's written so intuitively, you can just tell. I mean, it hasn't also hadn't been edited. You can also tell that, which makes mm. it difficult because you kind of want, wonder whether you're also doing an editorial job as well as a translation, a translated mm. job. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of messy and intuitive and, and stream of consciousness-like. And um, 
so every time I read it or rework it, I'm I'm return I'm kind of finding the core of of the text. Mm. Um, but this and so this this idea of truth and finding the truth um, and talking truly is is something that's constantly brought up in in the um, text. For example, her girlfriend C tells her to tell the truth um, because she thinks that Ackerman's hiding something. Mm. Um, Ackerman asks her mother to, <laughs> to tell the truth mm. because she knows that she's, she's never talked about the Holocaust. Mm. So this idea of parler vrai, um, to, to tell the truth or, or say something true is, is like a main concern in the book. Um, and the bit that I just read where she kind of has, I don't know, I'm not sure, mm. is kind of her interrogating that the whole time as well. At the same time, you actually have... Um, fiction and and non-fiction mm. um physically because it's a photo essay so you've got photos all the way through and you've got photos from her film which are fiction and then mm. photos that she's taken herself and you only realize this i mean unless you're a big ackerman nut where you can obviously name all the <laughs> different stills um yeah. at the back it kind of has a list of the photographs and you realize that some of them are just sort of private photos and some of them are um stills from her films um but i mean she's talked about this in another book um which wasn't um, which wasn't Mamari. It's um, a book that she was asked, was commissioned um, for an exhibition, and she talks about how um, uh, she says autobiography. I've just got a quote here: autobiography, yes, no, everything is, nothing is, um, feelings probably, facts. O facts are always a bit invented. Feelings aren't. Um, so basically, she's saying that um, you know, it's like when you reread your diary and you realise that you were saying what you felt at the time, and that's true. <laughs> that mm. was true to you at the time, but it might not be objective truth, obviously. Mm. Um, and she talks about, I mean, you know, like the thing about um, the autobiographical pact, where you know, when as soon as you write down um, something, the the I is no longer the same anyway and she kind of mm. makes a specific reference to this when um she says it's fiction because as soon as you write you fall always fall back into fiction um but across this fiction what was important to me was to be true so mm. true to her is it true to herself or true to I mean who cares really <laughs> um that's what's so interesting about it um and I think also in this radio interview you're talking about, I think it's in it's on France Culture. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly traumatic because um, the date of it is like a year before. She, I think it's just after her mother died, and she yeah. sounds very traumatized. Um, and she gives loads of stuff away <laughs> that she doesn't mean to, like um, you know all the names of the important people, all her former lovers, and the girlfriend that she describes, uh, designated by a single letter, and she kind of just <laughs> says their full name in the interview. Yeah. So she's obviously incredibly traumatized. But I think. Yeah, she says some amazing stuff um, on that. And if you if you speak French, you should give it a listen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's not actually very much written about Memery. I think there, there probably will be when it's translated, but um, a couple of academic articles have been written about it. Um, but I think because it was around this such a traumatic time in terms of her mother dying and also mm. then her dying, it kind of got buried. Um, there was a legal issue that means meant it couldn't be translated for a long time. So that's mm. also part of the delay. But I think it's exciting um, for it to come out now because it will again reinvigorate a discussion around Ackerman which is I mean for me Ackerman was kind of the first woman <laughs> filmmaker to die where people sort of posthumously sort of came out to say how much they'd always loved her and mm. um, how they'd always supported her work and you get that with you got that with Carolee Schneeman and Barbara Hammer where these curators came out and they were like oh I've always liked her work and it's like you just put her on last year because mm. after me too you know everyone's doing this too um I think it's exciting because I hope that um Ackerman will get more airplay again. Also, um, I know that all her works are currently being remastered um, in at the Cinematheque in Brussels. Oh, right. um, she's finally got some, they've finally got a lot of funding yeah. uh, after her death and have made a foundation. And so it's a blessing and a curse because I think at the moment not many people are able to play her films because lots of them are being, being reworked. Yeah. And it also means that the costs of hiring them are much more. Yeah. But um, at the same time, it will hopefully... Um, lead to even more interest around the world in her work the so as part of this um as part of this sort of edition that's um that's on its way uh you've got it's uh introduced by eileen miles and there's an afterword by francis morgan i suppose i uh how did how did they oh actually i suppose the first question really is um how silver press is as a home for it like and how, how that came about well i think i mentioned it um I met up with one of 
them, Joanna Biggs, who works for the LRB, um, a few years ago, I think, around the time that she died. Um, and I mentioned this book um, because at the time there was a Chantal Ackerman conference and it was kind of... It's, yeah, it's also kind of a weird thing translating someone who's... I mean, you've either usually you've either got someone that's been long dead or someone who's still alive and with whom you can correspond and it's a completely mm. different experience, obviously. It's very weird when you've got someone who's just died and who's got a very loyal... Um, not just fan base, but people that people that knew her very well, mm. and that's what you got at the conference. Like, all of these people had met Ackerman. There were some arguments about like <laughs> who had known her better mm. to to make this point. You know, it's really tricky, and it's like also the thing again about um, the author and and whether you. Sh- I mean, obviously, like, should you go on a biographical um, search for meaning or or not, or look at her text? Um, and one of the interesting things about Ackerman is also. Um, the fact that like a lot of assumptions have been made about her work from her life and similarly a lot of assumptions have been made about her politics from her work so Mm. you've got this weird crisscrossing and actually both of them are kind of ambivalent Um, for example she never wanted to be part of anything to do with feminism she kind of renounced Mm. the term she never wanted to be part of LGBTQ festivals either she kind of refused to go to them so there's a story of um, I think Sarah Shulman putting on an Ackerman film um, like secretly at a a gay festival um, in America um, because she refused to be (laughs) um, part of it Um, but yeah in terms of Silver Press so I I talked to Joe and I was like this is a a brilliant book and it was just I think it was just after the conference um, or just Mm. before I'm not sure um, and I think also because of this sort of literary cinematic crossover, it was kind of more ambivalent because can this filmmaker really write? I mean, that's not what they were saying, but mm. it's true. I mean, and also her writing is not at all conventionally in inverted commas good. Mm. Um, my French friend had a look at it and she was like, wow, this is a real mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I did, I just translated, um, an extract for them to look at. And Joe was like, this is great. Let's like let's try and get the rights for this mm. and it was really difficult because of this legal problem and um so i think finally we got the rights in march um but i just thought the press would obviously be great for it because they've published three books um all of which sort of um look at an expanded category of feminism either a, a woman that's kind of been neglected like Nell dunn and in some ways Leonor Carrington who's currently back coming back into vogue via like her artworks um that was another thing a uh, sort of hybrid mm. art uh, visual art versus writing um thing that I thought would be nice thing as they published Leonor Carrington um but also just the fact that it's a feminist publisher that's fairly new um I thought it would be a great home for it mm. <laughs> um and in terms of Eileen and Francis, uh, well, they sorted that out. Um, but I did suggest Eileen because I was kind of looking at writers whose tone I thought was fairly, and uh, occupations I thought were fairly similar. Mm. Um, I know that Eileen is working with a uh, film now. She's actually just made her own, their own film. Mm. Um, and um, also is showing films in Texas occasionally. <laughs> um, and so I know they're interested in visual um, art forms m- like more and more and also obviously the queer thing the thing the fact that the rhythm is kind of when I was read like reading some of the Ackerman I was kind of thinking about writers that share that rhythm and repetition and constant turning over thing that I was talking about mm. and I think Eileen's poetry does that mm. quite a lot um so yeah and Francis was um Silver Press's idea I think I mean they've written a lot about queerness and music yeah. so I just think it's great to have writers across forms um, to yeah. look at this work. So that's a, the kind of an introduction and, uh, and afterward, yeah. So yeah. Kind of they reflecting on the text. And have, you, have, you, have, you, have you read them yet, the pieces? Or? No, I think they're still, un- oh, still underway, under, <laughs> pending. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think they'll both get a copy of the text with the images. I mean, they both have a copy of the text with the images and um, will, I mean, I know that Francis is a big fan, fan of Ackerman's mm. work. Because I think wasn't the original text like as the sort of because it you know that's the other, it's the was kind of part of a series. Yeah, it? it's called Très Portrait and it's um, Edition de Mercure in France. But it's um, they sort of had a lot of weird people on their books like um, De La Croix. I mean, what's his name? No, Le Croix. Christian mm. Lacroix, the fashion designer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> De Lacroix, come back from the dead. Um, <laughs> That'd be good. And yeah, it's kind of a weird fit. Like I kind of wonder, I would love to know about 
how that came about, but I think it was basically Ackerman looking for a home for this piece of writing. Yeah. Um, and it seemed apt. I mean, the, I know that they put the images in, so the order is not Ackerman's choice. Mm. But I get the impression. I mean, I think the fact that it was hardly ever ed- hardly edited. I found like a few typos and a few things that were just wrong <laughs> and weird um, that were kind of. Um, debatable about whether to correct um i think the f- i think that ackerman probably said like i don't want this to be edited mm. I, this is my conditions because i mean ackerman and part of what's great about what's great about her character is how sort of uncompromising and sometimes difficult mm. <laughs> she was frankly um she was quite a difficult character and i think sometimes um that was off-putting for people but then again are like male filmmakers ever reprimanded for mean goddards and arsehole so mm. <laughs> but yeah so i think basically um she said, I don't really want this to be reworked. Yeah. Um, so. The, um, in the, the, the chunk of text that um, Silver have uh, lifted up uh, from the text to, on, on the website, on yeah. silverpress.org, uh, <laughs> <laughs> another plug there, uh, is, uh, I might as well just read it actually, it says, and, and there were other girls uh, who were odd ones too, and that was how it was. We loved each other, and that was that. I was 18 in May 1968, and it seemed as though my style was becoming popular, and that everything was going back to normal, if I dare use the word, because I really don't like the word normal. I prefer the word abnormal, but only just because in the word abnormal, you can hear the word normal, and that's a word I really don't want to hear. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, I mean, it would be, it's kind of like with the, the piece that you read that was the repetition of anger, and kind of like you hear it like again and again, and there's a sort mm. of like, uh, yeah, there is a sort of poetic kind of rhythm to in the, that um, it, that comes across. Obviously, it's different when you <laughs> switch it into English. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing that uh, that struck me about that. But another one is that um, saying I was 18 in May 1968. Um, that reminded me of like. Um, Annie Erno's um, memoir because that's kind of like there's a it feels like, I mean is that do you think that's a useful context for thinking about this or well I think yeah the sort of order fiction <laughs> aspect um, and the turning over of history but I mean in general the book is not really concerned with history I mean it, it is because it's concerned with the <laughs> traumatic memory of, of the holocaust um, and it, it goes back um, and forth between um, time periods without really um, noting them and mm. it goes back and forth between voices like you get these long um, sort of monologues from the mother just completely in the mother's voice without being marked out at all mm. which can be fairly confusing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and which you I guess to compensate for you really have to make put them in another voice um but yeah i think what's so great about that extract is like it's the only time when she really explicitly mentions her queerness um and it's something that i wasn't expecting it was kind of a narrative shock when i got to it because um she was kind of i mean she didn't really talk about being queer at all um and she only mentions it in this text by her father who the paragraph before is like her she overhears her father on the phone saying that she's done notre genre which i translated as an odd one or a funny one Mm. um and she takes, I mean, it's a kind of clothed, you know, when you hear your sort of homophobic uncle or something saying something in a clothed way because they can't even bear to say the word gay. Mm. <laughs> but he suspe- expe- suspects that she's gay, um, although she never actually told um, him. Um, and her mother, she talks about the fact that her mother um, was actually okay with it because after everything she'd been through, I think, to have, I mean, it's also amazing, this text, what I just read about um, the sister, like the, when her sister comes over and her sister's got her life together and has mm. a conventional nuclear family and, and this sort of um, shock as well. But yeah, that, that paragraph is kind of unusual in terms of the date um, and in terms of the sort of explicit um sort of reference to her queerness um and like i say i was shocked because even in terms of when she's talked about her films like which has a 30 minute lesbian sex scene Mm. (laughs) she kind of never really talks about it again i mean it's just there and there's this brilliant little film called oh god i can't remember it's it's a really long title (laughs) which is like a young girl in brussels growing up i don't know it's really long but it's from Mm. 1991 it's also available on youtube you don't have the title, but that's a bit of a problem. Jeune fille, something, something. And it's, yeah, it's about her. It's a kind of self-portrait of her as a young girl, sort of dating guys to be like everyone else, but really lusting after her best friend. Um, he's a woman. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think Erno is an interesting comparison because of the autofictional and repetition, repetitive aspect of it. Um, who else would I say? I mean, in some ways Beckett, in some ways Duras. I kind of always fear for these comparisons, like I was saying, with the obituary 
thing yeah. um just because i think they're not always that helpful but then also i mean to sell a film to sell a book they yeah. are useful <laughs> um so yeah but i i think that's that reference to queerness really um was a shock and there's a bit another bit that was also a complicated bit to translate but which also relates to her queerness where where she's telling her mom her mom's ranting about how Chantal goes all over the world with her films but just uh, only ever mentions like two words about each country yeah. and she's like oh she said that you know Cambodia was nice um but hot um <laughs> and you know like um Ackerman's um the way she expresses herself in such an amazing way and you you're like it's just so it's like a, um being a child where your mom's like how was school and you're like yeah it's fine um it's kind of they've still got that relationship um and which is all based around this whole which is the fact that um that Jurass I mean that Ackerman never talked about um Ackerman's mum never talked about the holocaust and yeah. it kind of brought me to Jurass as well because um she talks about this mot true like mm. whole word <laughs> mm. uh, a word that's uh, you know just not there that's um that she's tr constantly trying to find mm. and there's with Ackerman it's the true and she actually calls it a true um elsewhere is the whole is the fact as the the traumatic holocaust thing that she just needs to kind of slot in like she needs her mother to tell her about her experience there mm. so that she can have a, a complete narrative and it's what means as well she talks about the fact that it means that she can't really formulate her history and that her history is always going to be made up because she talks about how someone with a story full of holes can only ever invent and reinvent mm. But back to the, <laughs> what was I talking about? I don't even know. Um, back to the, oh yeah, the, the, the other mention of um, queerness. I, it's really, it was really difficult to know whether to go this far with it because at one point she, yeah, she's telling, um, her mother's talking about how her, she's telling her carer, I think, how um, Ackerman goes all over the world with her films and um, only ever says two words. And she's like, oh, and um, she told me that in China they have these images projected from boats. And um, I said, oh, uh, that must be gay and Ackerman and my daughter said I wouldn't really use that word <laughs> <laughs> and it's like gay is I mean it, I guess it's used more in French than in English but I think the fact that Ackerman I mean it's Ackerman's humour as well being like yeah. I wouldn't really use the word gay for the images <laughs> in China but so there's that as well I mean it's just really an interesting text to decode and I hope it will be decoded because in the translation obviously I was not trying to de decode yeah. and that was part of I mean part of the thing where you're so interested in the person's life and and the truth that they're trying to reach in a text is not going too far with the translation. I imagine it must be interesting watching it, uh, sorry, reading it along, because that's an interesting slip, uh, <laughs> alongside uh, No Home Movie, because like the bits there which are just sort of like very straightforward references to her. I mean, it's obviously, there's a similar level of artistry in the way it's it's chopped up and like uh, put through different frames, like the kind of like, you have the, there's a wonderful moments where they're having Skype calls with her mother, like, uh, and the, the laptops sort of, um, on, on screen but like obviously there's and like the relation what, what you're saying about the the sort of different nature of her sister's home life uh like you kind of see, like she's you know that you kind of get the contrast mm, there like where yeah like, yeah i mean that was really i mean i didn't actually watch no home movie until i finished again until finishing translating it because i was like i'm just gonna be tempted to but it's amazing because you get there's this bit where she talks about the chair that her mum sits on like the ones you get on planes and you mm. see this reclining kind of tacky um <laughs> blue um leather armchair that her mum falls back into every time same with um there's like a chair in an upturned blue chair in the in the um, garden that you you get in the text and also you see in the film um, and the Skype thing yeah it's amazing there's there's a lot of no home movie which is done by Skype where Ackerman's away traveling with her films often mm. and um, you get these Skype calls and it's also really funny because it kind of relates to this other story which is the um, the relation the complicated relationship she has with her, her girlfriend um, who I think she'd broken up with at the time of writing yes yeah, it's, it's a story that she recounts in the past and um she she talks about how she met her and it's because her sister put her on facebook um and it's funny because ackerman puts her mum on skype so that they can have this relationship but um her sister put her on facebook and she got into she kind of fell into this amorous relationship and it's amazing because if you look at if you type in ackerman facebook and go on google images this is brilliant um, conversation she has with a fan of her work who's like chantal chantal who inspires you and she's like myself <laughs> and um and which is why it's also so wrong to compare her to like Godin and stuff but yeah. um and she's like okay but if you had to say like who would you who would you say inspired your work and she was like 
myself where's my money I don't see it um so I think it's just hilarious I mean it's just a hilarious thing between the public and the private and also as a translator and being interested in stalking as I was saying earlier you know they're wanting to go further and further into this mystery but um no her movie does like definitely um correspond in a lot of ways and um fill in a lot of holes but also when you're reading the text I mean it, it refers to a lot it kind of mirrors a lot of her films like a lot of the images you've seen in films um a lot of the concerns also relate to films so yeah brilliant uh, watch no home movie yeah. as well. <laughs> and, buy, and pre-order the translation on some on yeah, yeah. press thought, thought, oh. steal at 13.99 you get some images in it as well <laughs> thanks very much daniel daniel, daniel Shreer, uh, i've been tom over and this has been resonance this has been Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming. Daniela's uh, at uh, Dan- Daniela SHR. On oh, God. <laughs> don't, go, don't go over to my And we're on Sweet uh, at Sweet underscore 212, where we'll post all the links to the various things we talked about today. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Okay, uh, see you again next week. Bye. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.